You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. Do you know that in the 11 years that I've been with Lions Gym and with Stephen Omandi Unanunganga Menya, that I have never heard him swear once in 11 years? Good for him. <laughs> now, one thing that already I can see that Bracken is doing, he keeps self-adjusting. Do you know that that is so dangerous? Now, I know you've heard this before, but I'm coming from love. You know, You're they, talking this and this? Yeah, the constant. I feel like I'm watching, uh, uh, what do you call it, Van Klandaug, whatever his name is, Klandaug, Vin Klandaug, John Klandaug. Jean-Claude Van Damme? Yeah, that's him. I feel like I'm watching him because he does that, you know, self-adjust, but he's got that Asian medicine going for him. So anyway, I'll let you That's the best compliment you've ever given me. <laughs> That's the first thing he's ever said to you, Bracken. That's the best compliment anyone's ever given me. That I'm, I, I remind him of Jean Claude Van Damme. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. Well, thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it. Well, Stephen, I just came from an interval session. I rolled in the door and I sat down. So I'll try to keep my my self adjusting to a minimum here. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So, Kirk, this is what you do, man. You're like uh, Rush Limbaugh. Uh, more, more important than Rush Limbaugh, obviously. So, so I want to give the listeners a little backstory. So, we're we're speaking with Stephen Menya today, who has been, I would say, my partner in the personal training and wellness industry since what 2010, Stephen. Long time, yeah, forever. Yeah, Stephen is from Kenya, who has the Kenyan came across the big lake to compete in running, came here. Now he's a chiropractor, started his own business, owns a gym and wellness center. Steve and I have partnered up for over a decade now. And uh, Stephen, you were you were a bit of an accomplished runner, weren't you, back back in the day? I ran for a living. Let's just put it that way. It's, it's I don't know about accomplished, but just I did it so I had to live. I had to eat and that's the only reason why I did it. <laughs> I, uh, I ran, it was incidental running, can I say. I, uh, I, I as, a, as, a, as, a, as a person who lived very far from where I needed to be, I had to run to get to where I need to be. Let's put it that way. Uh, but little did I know that that was an added thing, that that was an important thing to connect me to be able to be where I am today. Um, I did not know that running Apart from what I've seen on on TV, or I didn't know that running was important to my inst, uh, ends to a, means to an end. Is that right? English, yeah. Yep. <laughs> so I'm not accomplished, but I am. I was a runner. <laughs> I have not been this excited about a guest coming on our podcast since probably our first or second episode. Oh my goodness! Well. We, we were talking that we got into a bit of a rut with our guests. They all had the same backstory. They all had the same upbringing. They all had the same progression through sport. And so we broke our mold a little bit with our last guest, but we've completely shattered it with yours because no one who was born in this country has your story. Well, uh, if you have time, okay, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> well, we all, 
we all grow up in when you're in the running community or whenever you find it, we all hear the legends, you know, the stories, the myths of what growing up in Kenya is like and what making it as a runner in the running camps there is like versus here. And there's a lot of misinformation and a lot of hyperbole out there. Going straight to the source is always the best opportunity. So whatever your time frame is, I want to hear the story. All right. So this is how it started. I uh, The running, again, like I said, it was coincidental. It was uh, incidental. It was an accident that happened. Uh, I was I had been invited into this country to represent my country in something that they call International Youth Forum. International Youth Forum is a platform where they get all these African delegates to meet somewhere in the world. And one of the things I think that was supposed to be accomplished by this forum was recruit runners. But no one tells you that. It's, 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 a, it's a Christian, it's a religious, it's a, it's a political, but eventually they're trying to bring people from all over the world to discuss this objective they have. But a few days or so into it, they do different kinds of sports, but they're recruiting some universities, local universities come by and they recruit students. I did not know that. <clears throat> so just being able to be recruited as a delegate to come to the United States was amazing because it was a way out of, of my village because I lived in a village, a small town. And of course, I don't want to sound familiar, but where I live, it's, 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 not, it's, not, it's not Minnesota. It's we, we ate what we grew, or like bananas, spinach, all that stuff. So that, we, we did irrigation, we watered our plants, we raised animals, we had farm, uh, not farm, but we had animals like livestock, we milked our cow. So all that got old for someone, you can imagine a 14-year-old, 15-year-old. So having an opportunity to come and represent my country in this international youth forum was so big because it was a way out of there. Stephen, I want to interrupt you real quick, actually, um, because you've told me a number of like anecdotal stories over the years about like growing up in small town or small village, Kenya. And you were talking about running back and forth as a means to an end to get to places and do things. Um, we've talked, we've touched on it in like personal conversations, but like, what was that like? Like, where were you running to and from? Like, what was like the day-to-day -day life like in a small village in Kenya? And that's the, the story I'm getting to in the sense that this is a, 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 a village that I lived in and they came and recruited me and they said, we want you to represent our, your country. So I was one of the delegates that I was invited to run. When I say moving from one to area, so we would get maize. And then we'd have to run it to go get ground to eat that. Maize is corn, folks, in case you don't know. Yes. So we would have to go to a different area, grind it, bring it in. Some of it will eat, some of it will sell. The cows, we'd have to take them miles to go get water, literally from the river, because we didn't have wells at that time. So I grew up in that village setting, literally. If I had to go to school, I literally have to run... Uh, or walk, run because I'm running behind because my father did not give me the bus fare. So I had to run because I was going to be late. Um, and it would be 10 miles, literally, literally, it would be 10 miles. And I'm not trying to sound familiar, cliche they call it, but I would run and my brother would run with me to, to school. And then in the evening, we would come back. 
Why would I run back? Uh, because the fare that my father gave me, I did not have a bicycle. And there was a place, a town somewhere between my home and my village. There was a place that they rented out a bike. You could actually rent a bike. And to a kid's dream, riding a bike was a dream. So the bus fare that I was given, I would rent that bike just to enjoy riding the bike. And then I'd walk. That's how I'd make up for the fare. Or if, 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 if I was hungry, I would use that bus fare to eat because I didn't have enough food at home. There was nine of us, plus my relative. We were 13 kids in my family. You, you would only eat a slice of bread with black, strong tea, sugarless, of course. And, and what happens is because you're still hungry, that bus fare, the, you would choose which way to use the bus fare for, either to go or come back. But it wasn't for both ways. So after eating that fare, the only thing left was to walk. So it was almost an obligation. It was almost you had to. So that's the back and forth that I did running. And, and the bike was a dream. So out of a week, I'd go ride the bike maybe twice. But the sacrifice was I had to walk home. Um, 10 miles. So you put in 10 miles of walking in order to get on a bike. To get on a bike. That was the dream. Was this... Sorry to interrupt again, but was this a common thing like um, in your village? So obviously your village was pretty small if you were going that far to school. Um, was it common? Like there'd be a number of boys and girls that would have to do that? Because, and I'll, and I'll say that because here, like we don't really understand the upbringing of Kenyans and all we hear is, oh, they run everywhere. So they're really good at running and they get a lot of, you know, involvement because that's how they're brought up. And I always wondered, is that true? Or is that just what we think is true? It is true. It is true because... Even today, even this last time I visited Kenya, which was a few week, a week or so ago, you could see people just walking, walking and running. Why? Because there's very few who can afford that means of transportation, which is a car or, or public transportation. And for a kid, it's easier because your father cannot afford some of those, like a bike, which I always wanted to have. You have to find a way to enjoy that. But also at the same time, so much for that bus fare that they gave you. So we had to walk. Another thing that we did, our play was running. So we would race constantly. We would run around the village. We would, we would say, whoever wins, I get your dinner. <laughs> Those were the best that we placed. Um, you buy me a snack if I win. So we literally were competing to feed ourselves. Uh, <clears throat> so I remember me and my brother constantly running maybe a three mile, three mile, four mile, we would race. And I remember one particular time, that's funny. I would beat him once and then he would say, okay, this time he's going to time me. So I just blow him at the beginning of the race. And this is just child play. I, I would beat him so that he couldn't catch up to me even when he timed it a certain way. You know how runners can be. I'm going to save at the beginning or I'm going to blow it, you know, really run at the middle or really run hard at the top of the race. And I remember... It was a constant, I bet I can beat you around the village. I bet I can beat you to the top of the hill. I bet I can beat you down the hill. It was a constant race, constant race. And, and, and the funny part is uh, we never noticed that we were actually building up for my future as a runner. I didn't know. And, and I remember... There was five, seven guys, even grown-up guys would be racing kids like me, and we'd still beat them, you know? But 
little did we know that I was trimming or getting ready for the future, you know, with running. So yes, people run everywhere. My mom, another way that I got good at running was my mom would say, this is, this is in the middle of the night. It'll be like a 10.30, 11.30, and it's just dark, as dark as you close your eyes. And my mom would say, Evans, that's, that's what he should call me. He should call me Wasi Wasi. Wasi Wasi is the nickname for a fast kid. Wasi Wasi, I'm always, I'm always like, like Flash, you know? And my mom, she would say, Evans, please go get me two eggs. Now we don't, when she says go get two eggs for me, that doesn't mean you go to the grocery store. We, you could buy two eggs, you could buy three eggs. You don't have to buy a tray. And the store would be literally three, four miles away. This is in the middle of the night. We close, the stores are closed because wild animals will, will, will eat you or harm you. And she would say, why don't you go get this for me? I'm telling you, I was already asleep and she would wake me up and I had to go run. So I would run there and the fear of being eaten by an animal, the fear of being eaten. Cause some kids, I know some kids who are eaten or killed by animals. Uh, why? Because we keep our livestock so far away that the wild animals become desperate and they start eating little ones. Bracken, can you imagine if, you're, uh, if your parents woke you up at two in the morning and were like, I need you to go run four miles as a, as a child. And then there were lions and hyenas that wanted to eat you along the way. And in my, and in my area, those animals, the animals that exist in the area depend on the, on the geographic terrain. So like in my area, it was hyenas, leopards, and the most notorious one is the mongoose. The, mo- the mongoose uh, and the leopard, they would eat our chicken. But the leopard is the one that snatches kids away because they're an easy lift up the tree, I guess. Uh, I remember one time, one kid uh, was following the mom and she told the mom, the pot is ready for you to go cook because the water was boiling on the three stone fireplace. And we could hear this. So that's the, the leopard purring. And I remember one of my village guys saying, be careful, we can hear the leopard breathing, literally. And the leopard is going, and as the mom is walking towards the, the hut, there's several huts in the village, and she's going to the smaller one to go cook for the kid. We hear all this racket. And sure enough, a leopard has grabbed the kid that's following the mom towards the hut. Pick the kid up with her back. I mean, leopard has carried, has grabbed the kid as the kid is walking behind the mom. And you can hear the mom going, And right there, we take sticks from the fire because that's the trick to get this leopard to corner it. And we take sticks, each of us take sticks, and we're running towards where this leopard is. And she's saying, it's gone up on the tree, it's gone up on the tree, it's gone up on the tree, the kid. And you can hear the kid screaming, you know. So here we are, and we surround the leopard, and we are hitting drums you know, empty cans to scare this leopard and the leopard is up there and you can hear it go like that while he's holding this kid. So we we confuse this leopard enough and drops the kid because, you know, it's slapping in the air, slapping, trying to scare us. It's up on the tree. And I remember everyone, it's all this. And then eventually the leopard is intimidated enough, jumps down and slaps one of the guys and takes the eye out. 
literally slaps like that, takes their eye out, and gets away. The guy's eye eye is is on the ground, but the the kid is safe. So this is what we had to deal with. That fear is what makes you not want to walk. <laughs> <laughs> that is unreal. And that's one. And that's one of the many stories. Because you asked me, did I run everywhere? Yes, you had to. And uh, another th- thing that made me maybe run all the time was was just the idea that if I don't get home on time, I won't get food. It will be gone. So you are far away wherever you are. You run in just to get enough food. So, yes, we run everywhere as kids and as teenagers. And then as you get older, you don't realize that that running was so important, I guess, you know. So, I mean, what do you say to that? You just casually dropped three or four stories that no one on this continent ever deals with. Well, come live with me in Kenya. (laughs) You will see it. It shows why we struggle in race situations, because that's the toughest thing we ever go through. I mean, Kirk tells me about how how this deer goes down. I didn't even know that deer does that. If I knew that when I was a Kenya, in Kenya, I would have done better getting some of these animals. We have something called a dick dick. It's a smaller kind mm-hmm. of gazelle. And and what I didn't realize that Kirk taught me was when it hears that sound, it goes down to spring out, and that's how he missed or how he got to kill the animal. If I knew that. I'll probably have better hunts in Kenya. <laughs> I'm going to tell you something back in the day. All I keep thinking about is your mother, knowing that knowing that the neighbor boy just got snatched up, and she's like, screw it. I need them two eggs. Son, I need them eggs. We're going to risk it all so I can make you a pancake. But those are the errands I had to do. I had to run to the store. I had to walk to school. I I had to walk to run to church. I mean, everywhere. It was literally, and I hated it. I hated it. And so I said, one day, I'm going to go to America. But I didn't say I'm going to America to run. I said, I'm going to go to America so I can get a better education. But little did I know that running is what was going to help me. My worst chore when I was a child is I had to take the compost container out to the compost. And we had a long, narrow yard and we had a detached garage and the compost bin, the compost pit was behind the garage and we had a big tree and lots of bushes. So it was very dark and I'd tiptoe out there cause the light didn't reach the back of it. And I would get to the end of the corner and I just knew there were animals waiting in there and I would throw it around the corner. I wouldn't care if it landed or not. And I would sprint back to the house knowing that there were wolves or coyotes or something nipping at my back, but there weren't because because there's nothing dangerous around me. But the oh. fear of there could be an animal was the worst part of my childhood. And it was imagined. Yeah, well. Yours was not imagined. No, there's one more, there's one more, now that you say that, there's one more, I remember we had a wake to go to. Someone had died and we had a wake to go to. And the wake is, is miles and miles away. But we have people whom uh, here they call it streaking. People who who just go down to bare nothing, and then they just kind of do witchcraft. So they will run. You know how this corrugated sheet and the corrugated sheet has up and down, up and down. So they'll stick the stick, and they'll just run along your house, and they'll make that rattling noise just to bug you. Naked. Yeah, witchcraft. So that's what they're doing. But one of the things that we youth used to do is we would time them, because one of them 
was notorious to do what? He would come to the door and he would just kind of rub his nakedness on our door. <laughs> I didn't hear that sound of a body rubbing on the door. The, the witchcraft or the witch guy or the night runner knew that the doors were latched. So this one time we say we're not going to latch it. So we let it loose so that if he leans on it, he falls in and then we'll chase him. So here we are, four or five boys. How old? Uh, maybe 12 years old, waiting for this night runner. Because we and my brother Donald, we had been in the village for a long time. And it's constant at night. So this one time we said, we're going to wait for him. Came in and he's leaning on it. And the door, because it's not latched, fell in. We started beating up on him at 12 with sticks. And off we go running. So we're running in the dark, chasing this guy, beating up on him, naked, never came back. But guess what? That's part of the running again. You know, we are constantly using a running as a resource because the police don't come anyways. We live in the village. If you pay for a policeman to come, you have to pay for the gas for them to come to see you. So if I do a 999 call, that's what we had. They say, unless you pay for the gas for them to come, they're not coming. So we did the, the arbitration of, of judging this criminal. Another thing we did that was running, we run everywhere. If a thief came up, someone who stole something, we would chase the thief down until we caught the thief. Mob justice. So all this running is very common. I think... Um... I'm understanding now, Bracken. I don't know about you, but I, I didn't. I didn't know the depth of like this is every hour of every day of every facet of your life growing up. You're you're literally running like that. That was your childhood. I, I didn't know the extent of it. I figured it was like running to school or playing. You just had nothing better to do, so you played all the time with the neighbor kids. They're like you were a running fool, Stephen. <laughs> and then there's no winter, so we were running year in year out. Every time it was running, running. So let's talk then. So your childhood, I get it. The running makes a lot of sense. It's incredible. You, how did you end up getting recruited then? How did how did somebody know of you, of all the village boys and girls? It made sense to recruit you into this program. Like, how did anybody know to choose you? So what happened is uh, when I, that youth forum, that international youth forum that I was talking to you about earlier, they had races schedule for people to run. I was the t-shirt boy. What does that mean? I, when they take their clothes off, I am the one who's supposed to go pick him off the track and bring him back to where the Kenyan delegation was. So I remember very well, Isaac Odupa, we were supposed to be running the 400 meters that day. And Isaac Odupa had eaten a burger and we had never eaten a burger before. And I remember the night before Isaac Odupa enjoying this burger so much because we'd never eaten a burger before. And I, I remember I remember him not feeling well the next day for the race he was supposed to. And so they asked me, they say, Stephen, we just need some points. Why don't you just run? You don't have to finish. Just run. And Isaac said, Isaac said, why don't you just run? I mean, what's the worst that happened? I've never run before, except for the running that I've been doing at home in the village. So they say, Stephen, why don't you just get on there? and just finished the race, 400 meters. I didn't even know what 400 meters was. The only running I'd done was really for my high school, but it was, they say one lap. They didn't say it's 400 meters. They say, just run one lap or two laps or, so I remember, uh, onto your mark, get set, 
go. That's the first time I had a gun. Um, never heard a gun shot purposefully. I know they say auntie Mark gets it, go, but never there. So I don't know if I won that day because of the gunshot, <laughs> more than natural skill. But you won. I won that race. How old were you? Uh, 15, 16. And this is in the village or near the village? No, this is in the United States now. I've been recruited to come. Well, that's what I'm wondering, why they recruited you to start with. Because I was, I could speak English. Uh, and it wasn't because of my running, because I was a faithful of the church I was going to. And some missionaries had come around. And potentially they saw this kid who has so much dreams and hopes. So they said, why don't you just come and join the delegation? So you were there to assist the athletes and be a part of it. And then you won the race. The, the one who was supposed to run did not run because he had a stomach food poisoning. So you went from water boy or t-shirt boy to the champion because he ate a burger and couldn't digest it. That was a good burger. I'm glad that burger <laughs> But that's what happens. What did you run? Well, it was a 400 meter race that I ran that day. But that was a heat. That's why they wanted me to just run. Okay. So I qualified for the next race. I ran and I won that. How fast? Well, I didn't know that timing was important at that time. Okay. I just won it. And then they said, why don't we run one more? So they gave me shoes. I remember they gave me some shoes with nails on them. <laughs> Spikes. Yeah. And so they said, why don't you run in there? And I told them, do you want to take these nails out? No, they said, no, those are the ones you need to run in. So I remember walking in them because I ran bare feet. All, those, all these races I was running, I was running bare feet. And they said, why don't you try running shoes? Now this is when the recruitment started. But I did not know. So uh, I'm running, but the nails were hurting my feet. So I took him off in the middle of the race. And I won that race, too. In a 400, <laughs> you took your shoes off and won. I kicked them out because they were just pricking my feet so much. Now, I have to tell you, I still have thorns in my feet. And I thought that's what was bothering my feet. But it was just not, I wasn't used to running in shoes. I, have a, I want to interrupt really quick. I'm sorry. Um, as far as the Kenyan recruitment process and running in the U.S., would Kenyan runners have been recruited in the same fashion, though? Like, how did those runners get recruited that you were supporting? Do you know? Today, I see them recruiting actively in Kenya. When I go there, they have camps set up for that. But back then, they, they, the armed forces, they used the armed forces to recruit runners. Okay. Yeah. So what happened is after running this race on that day and winning, they they asked me to run a 55 meter. I mean, I kept winning these races. So then I got recruited to run for our school. Uh, the coach of the school told me, what would you think if you came and ran for us after running these international youth races? So now I went and joined the armed forces, which is a Kenyan platform for runners. All the world record holders in the world were in this camp, Kirk. I mean, we have even Sebastian Cole came to train in this camp. That was my, that was the only European I knew that was a runner, that I found out was a runner when he came to Kenya at that time in this armed forces camp. I was not aware of that. Yeah. So, so now here I am running with these world-class runners. But I didn't know that I was a world-class runner at that point until I started running with these guys. Then all of a sudden, I'm keeping up with them. 
And then the concept of time, that's when it hit me. I have to be time. But all along, I ran, I ran to win. They say, why don't you just win that? And I remember after training with these armed forces guys for a while, I came back and it was during the fall when I came to this country. And I know that was a good runner when I ran indoor. We don't have indoors in my country. You know, they have indoor season, outdoor season. I didn't know that. So here I am running an indoor race. I ran into the wall. They put me on the, you know, they put the slower runners on the outside lane because they don't know you as a runner yet. But then as you get better, they put you in the middle lane. They, I was on lane number six on the indoor track. And I remember running so fast, not knowing how to run the indoor. I ran into the wall and gliding along the wall to stay in the track with my hands because I was running against the wall. I didn't know to slow down. I mean, this is the difference between indoor and track that I didn't know. Now, as I went to the nationals, as I got better, the track is leaned so you don't fall outside. But these other tracks are flat. And that's how that happened. You were you were great at the delegate, you know, at the forum. And yeah. then suddenly you're racing indoor track for university. Yes. What, what happened in between there? What university contacted you? How did you get in contact? And then what was that process like? I had, uh, I had several universities that contacted me. I was going to take any just to get out of that village. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't matter. You know, uh, I had some schools from Iowa call me and, and I had some schools, smaller schools call me. I went to the school. I, I thought it was respectful to give the, the guy who saw me when I was just nothing in the village, and that's Graceland. That's the school that Jenner ran at. Uh, Bruce, mm -hmm. Jenner, if you've heard of him, mm -hmm. that's the school that recruited me. And the person who recruited me from Africa came from that school. So I thought, let me just give him the respect, mm -hmm. taking them. Where is Graceland? I don't know where Graceland that is. Is in Lamoni, Iowa, small little town in Lamoni, Iowa. And they offered you like, we'll pay for your schooling and we'll take, we'll get you here. They did everything for me. Okay. What was it like getting here? Oh, I got here on the fall. In the fall, it was cold. It was terrible. I remember my first snow, and I, I remember, I remember coming in. Um, and, and, and what happens, There's a, you come in on August 28th, that's when you come in. You have at least a month to get used to the weather. I saw, I mean, the leaves were falling. I was like, my goodness, why are leaves falling off the trees? But I didn't know that that's how it happens. I thought Kenya was coming behind me, but the opposite happens. The leaves are falling, but it's colder. That was unusual for me. The colors of the tree being yellow, red, all that stuff. And that's the season for cross country as well, the fall. So I was running cross country and then indoor track starts. Wait, how did cross country go? Because I'll, I'll cut to, I'll give a little sneak peek. Like you were a 400 meter runner is what you ended up as. And I know you despise long distance running so, today because you just enjoy the shorter, spicier stuff. How did cross country go that first season? Oh, I met, I met a runner. <laughs> I remember this guy, Kiplagat. Kiplagat is a, is a, is today, he's, he's a cross country, a marathon runner. He, he's a coach for the Kenyan team now. Mm -hmm. But I remember him, I ran with him in college, but I didn't know that he was also recruited for another school. And, and what had happened is I was, it was my first cross country race. 
And I remember him running and I tried to keep up with him. And and it was a big mistake. I didn't I've never I'd never done cross country before. And until Mark gets said go, I ran it like as if I was running an 800. And and I remember Kiblagat running like a gazelle, just blop, 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 as he took off. But what I learned from that was cross country is what helps you for the season in the spring. I didn't I did not know that. Uh, cross country was terrible because it was cold outside. You run it in the cold. Even the the hills that I trained at in Kenya, the Gong Hills, that the famous world Gong Hills that you hear about, did not prepare me for the fall like it was here. It was very cold. If there's anything you you need to know about Stephen is that even in the summer, Stephen will wear long johns under his pants at the gym because this guy runs cold. Because you were so used to that hot temperature. I bet you right now, Stephen, if you lift up your pant leg, do you have long johns underneath that? I sure do. (laughs) (laughs) That's how you know that guy doesn't like the cold. It was very cold. But so now from now here we are in in Iowa, I'm looking for, I want to be in the Olympics. That's really, now that I've figured out I can run, uh, I I wanted to be in the Olympics. So I want to go to a faster school. Did you ever do well in cross country? Yes, eventually. You were a 400 meter runner who wanted to go to the Olympics and you did well in cross country. That doesn't happen. <laughs> so what happened is I, uh, I started to, I, I, got the, I got the gist of cross country. It was a five mile race. I ran well beyond that at home. But what I didn't know is how to run cross country. And then those hills up and down, up and down in between. And I got better at it. And I started practicing and I got better at it. And so now I was being recruited by some stronger school like LSU, Southeastern Louisiana University. I wanted to run at Baylor. I wanted to go somewhere in the Southeastern Conference. So that's how that transitioned. Because in Iowa, I couldn't get, I didn't get the competition I needed. Did you compete for Graceland in track that first year? I did. Yes, I did. And how did that go? I was really good. I, I, I was winning all my races. <laughs> um, I had a couple people who had been doing racing a much longer time than me. So they knew the technique of running. And, and if anything, that was my weakness. I did not know how to run. I ran naturally and won, but I did not know there's an education to running. And that's what I see that I do different, that I would do different today, is I would educate myself on how to run. How long did it take to learn how to go to blocks to start? The blocks, I didn't use the blocks the first two years of my running. I just ran off the, I just ran off the empty market said go. Were you the only one? I was the odd one out, but I still won. So they were wondering how I was doing it. Uh, I remember being told how to measure the blocks, and I could never do it. I always was false starting, but I said, I don't want it. So I would wait a second before I took off. And that was another thing, is, is you would say, oh, you're false started. Oh, you're false started. And I thought, these, these blocks are just stupid. Just let me go off the ground like everybody else. And the problem was, if I had learned how to do that, I think I would have been a better runner. I think I would have not hurt myself. But no one took time to do that for me, as I said, you know? Yeah. So 
a year after it's starting, then I started using the blocks. Now, this is how we did blocks in my country. You dig a little hole into the ground and it will be in the ground. So your foot will be under the grade. That was my block. Uh, and then another way we did blocks is we ran on grass. Back at home, we ran on grass or gravel. So the gravel always slipped, you know, while you ran. So, so it was never, I never used blocks all my running. Even when I raced in high school, in my high school, there was no blocks. You just stood there and took off. Now, the 800 meters, you don't get off the blocks when I ran 800 meters. You just did a stance. And then the 400 meters, again, you just go on your knees and toes, and that's how you did it. So never use blocks. And, and today, would I use blocks? Yes, I would. If I knew how back then, I would have. I must say, I, I see you run back and forth across the gym when things are busy. Steven's running back and forth between chiropractic patients and people he's personal training in the gym. And I will say, I've been around thousands of runners in my years. And you probably have the most biomechanically sound running stride that I have ever seen in my life. And that's just you running from the front room to the bathroom quick and then getting back. You clearly didn't have that when you started running. Did you learn all of that? If you guys watch Steven Menu run, it is a beautiful, beautiful thing. What I'm being serious. What, did you, was that self-taught or what was that? Because you're very, and now with your athletes that you work with, you're always talking about mechanics. You're always telling them where to keep their hips and their chest and their arms. But clearly you learned that somewhere along the way. So when I ran, I think we talked about this before. Learning how to do those high knees is part of the education I've learned lately. But when I ran, I would shrink in height. I don't know. Um, I w I'm a strider runner. And I think that's what I mean. My length of stride got longer when I ran. And the high knees is part of the new technique that I've learned. And because I hate running so much, that's how I run today. I do things they call fartlek, where you do a quick sprint and then you jog. Quick sprint and then you jog. That's where I've learned how to. So that wasn't your technique back then? Back then, when I ran track and field, I would do long strides. Long, I mean, I was a long stride runner. And it didn't matter. It didn't matter in the middle of the race, at the beginning of the race, it was long stride through and through, and that's how I always won. So I, curious. I have had professional athletes come to me now asking me to help them with speed and distance. I've had some Viking guys come by. I've had some, some uh, college kids ask me to come by, some NBA guys come by. The technique of running is what I'm incorporating into, into their sport. That's, the, that's what I'm doing. Because every sport that they play includes a little running falling back, you know, uh, defense, offense, all that include running and you need endurance anyway. So I use that technique to teach my people who run, you know, who do sports like. So then in that recruitment process, who did you choose after Graceland? So I chose Graceland because of the respect for, mm -hmm. for them recruiting me in the first place. Now, had I known that uh, certain schools were better for running than certain, I would have done that. I would have probably chosen a school that's the emphasis is on running because I really wanted to be in the Olympics. That was my ultimate goal after finding out that I can run. Uh, I remember my coach telling me, Stephen, you just have to go where your running career can really be something you can, you can use for your future. But I wanted to be a doctor. 
So there was a little bit of a conflict. I said, I just want to go somewhere where I can get out of this village living that I lived in. We were, we were not doing so well uh, financially. Uh, so anything would be better than mm-hmm. another year or two in the, in the village. My mom and dad tried really hard to give us the best education and best upbringing, but also that rough side of it, which might sound rough to some people, is what has made me who I am and I appreciate who I am today. But Graceland is who I chose because Graceland gave me that first out of that village that I lived in. And then I went to Southeastern Louisiana University. I think it's a branch of Louisiana State, just like they have here. The Gophers have certain schools that come from there. And that's when I got hurt. I remember training preliminaries. New Orleans was hosting their trials. Uh, and I remember when I was practicing, we were doing eights. Everything is in eights. You do eight 400s, eight 55s, eight 200s, and you have to run them under a certain time. That's how I got hurt. So I was doing my last 200. And they always say, be careful on that last run because that's when you get hurt. Because you're like, oh, my goodness, I'm doing my last, and then I get to go home. And that's how I got hurt. I blew up my sartorius. It's a, it's a small muscle, but it's a very important muscle for turnover. You are asking me, Kirk, why do I do high knees? Because I wasn't doing high knees that day. I was dragging my feet because I was tired and it overloaded that muscle and I tore it. So when did you, you said Southeastern Louisiana? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What, how many years did you run there? I ran there two years, three years. I ran there for two years. I ran for two years for Graceland and I ran three years for Southeastern Louisiana. And how did, how did that go? Do you remember, did you start paying attention to your times, Steven? Yeah, I started paying attention to my times. Um, my best time at that time was 44.65 for the 400. That was my best time. My worst time was maybe 48. Uh, my best 800 was 1 minute 52 in the 800 meters. Uh, 44.6. Yeah. It's very fast for college. What did that do for you in the NCAA circuit? Oh, my goodness. I uh, It opened doors. Did you win nationals? I, I, ran, I ran nationals. I remember in Nebraska. Uh, I remember being in the Drake relays. I remember being in the Penn relays. Uh, I remember running against uh, Michael Johnson in, uh, in, the, in the Drake relays. I remember running with... Louis, but they were not they were not allowed to run with us because of the sponsorship rules or whatever but i remember being in that circuit being able to do that so you went to the you went to the national championships yes i did go to the national championships i remember running as an anchor in some of those relays i remember running as a first leg runner uh i remember being invited to do some um, what do they call it? Workshops? Workshops. I remember being told to come to the workshops. And the best that I remember were the best races that I ran were the Drake Relays for me personally. I love, I, I love the blue track. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, the only thing that was hard for me was the, the time of the seasons was it was cold. That was so discouraging. Uh, can I run a 40, a sub 40 now, a sub uh, 45? Maybe not. But because I was able to run that time, I got full ride scholarship. I want to continue this story.
story in a second. However, I want to know what it's like because you see, like, even when when you watch like the NCAA championships and you have a number of Kenyan or African recruitments running on collegiate teams. I actually just want to know what that transition was like. Like, what are these Kenyan athletes experiencing when they come over to the States and they're thrown into a school and they have culture shock and they don't really understand the U.S. system yet? You know, because you see this. I mean, how many Kenyans are running today, you know, for universities under a similar pretense? So what was that? I want to, again, pick up your story later. But like, what was that like? Like, you show up, you get off the plane, you're here at university. And like, what, aren't you in culture shock? Like, what is the, the Kenyan or African athlete experiencing in that part of the problem? I think number one, like you said, culture shock. The Kenyan athletes, the problem with the Kenyan ad, with that transition is we, just number one, the shock. Number two, unless you're coming to like a Southeastern conference or one of those uh, AAUs like California or any, the Midwestern is a very tough transition for a lot of Kenyan athletes because of the weather, that's one. Number two, um, it's, you're just thrown into this, you, you gotta produce, you gotta perform, you know? Uh, so it takes about a year or two before you start hearing the person who came in the first place, before they start being the real runners that they were when they were back at home. Homesick, I was so homesick, I remember. And the hardest part for me as an athlete was a lot of people came, a lot of their parents or their siblings would come see them run. I didn't have any of that. Um, I would, I would, you would see they would go have dinners and stuff. So they would invite me to come along. So that was nice. But the issue was I didn't have my mom and dad to come and see me run. I missed that. So I was really homesick. And then I think the the one that really sticks out for me the most is is mixing education and running. Because they want you to sustain a certain level of, of degree or of, of education or GPA. The GPA system is not what we used in Kenya. We just used, you either get a grade A, grade B, grade C. So you have to maintain a certain GPA. Others, you don't qualify for the scholarship. But English was your second language, obviously. So yeah. like that had to be a whole problem itself. I remember my counselor telling me, to change my major to just go into history or English. And I was like, what do you mean? Well, he says, you can't be a doctor. You're not smart enough and stuff like that. You know, just that that indignant talk that you don't qualify. But again, they that is part of that education system that's different. So a lot of Kenyans, like you, they come here to run, but all of a sudden they're supposed to also go to school. So there's two ends you have to keep comparing. Others you miss either or. What was the, the diet transition like? You talked about your, you got into running because of cheeseburger. I assume you, you had your own struggles with adapting to food here. I really, I was so used to eating vegetables and maize that I, I, I remember the first time I saw a Coca-Cola fountain, a Coca-Cola or a soda fountain. I remember wondering where this soda was coming from. <laughs> so I was looking at this fountain and and I would press the dispenser. And I was like, where is this water coming from? And, and I remember drinking like 12 glasses of Coke. Because I had never had Coca-Cola like this. Um, and I remember I remember just, just loving it and getting sick the next morning from all that Coca-Cola. <laughs> and I, I, rem I remember 
um, they gave me my own plate of food. Like I asked, is someone gonna share this with me? They say, no, that's yours. I'm like, mine, mine, like my plate? Yeah, you can eat it all, right? Because I was so used to one meal being divided up among so many people, you know? I remember being given a tomato to eat with my burger. And I was like, are you sure you want me to have this with tomato? Because tomato, you know, they slice it up. One tomato would be cooking for nine people, but they had given me two slices of tomato for myself. And, and then the one thing that I really, that really was hard for me food-wise, when they gave me salad, and I was wondering when they were going to cook it. So here's raw vegetables, and you're supposed to eat it. Because all my vegetables were cooked or blanched or whatever you want to call it. So that was hard for me that I had to eat raw salad. And I thought it was the most disrespectful meal. <laughs> Why are they giving me raw food? But I guess that to now, today I understand what that salad was. Because all my food was cooked. All my food was shared. All my food was hot. I didn't understand the cereal. Why would you add milk to seeds? Because that's what that was. I mean, the food was was a hard transition. How did your body react to it? It didn't take it well. I told you I got sick the next morning. <laughs> Anybody would get sick if they drank 12 Cokes, Steve. I drank 12 Cokes, I remember. Do you know how much Stephen likes Cokes, by the way? So Stephen, Stephen enjoys Guinness and he likes Coke. So he... So he installed a Guinness kegerator in his basement. Stevens worked very hard to earn his place in this world, I will tell you. And Steven will pour a half a glass of Guinness and then finish it off with a half a, half a glass of Coke. That's Steven's beer. That's how much he likes Coke to this very day. Yeah, it softens it. It's, it makes it smooth. And now Guinness is already smooth. It doesn't need eight ounces of Coke in it. <laughs> <laughs> I also love, I love the scotch too, now that Mr. Kirk has taught me how to drink that. That's right, I did. <laughs> um, so that was, that was hard. Another thing that was hard for culture for me, I think was, was uh, the, the, the racial separation. That was hard for me, especially in the Southeastern Conference. That was very hard for me uh, because you would have the black athletes on one side and the whites on one. I mean, that was completely different for me. Did you know? Did you deal with that actually? Like racism when you came over was that was that very heavy on you? Did you did you feel that? Because for, for I guess context, we need to tell you, Stephen, you are forty seven years old, correct? Yes, you're forty seven. I'm forty seven years old. Yes, I assumed you were somewhere between Kirk and I in age. Oh my goodness! Wow. You guys can't see Steven, but Steven looks like he could go out and run 44 <laughs> seconds right now. He has all his hair, not a speck of gray on him. He looks even younger in person. Oh, for, for reference, oh. you, you, came, you came over and were enrolled in college in the mid to early, early 90s. Yes, yes. So the reason why, one of the reasons why I left uh, Lamona, Iowa, one, is because I was one of the only ones there. <laughs> I was the only number one black uh, in the team for the group of the race that I was doing, which was in there. You didn't have, I mean, it was me. As a matter of fact, when I came and I told them I was going to do cross country, they thought they were going to win the championship, you know, because I'm Kenyan, you know. Uh, but little did they know that the cross country, I hated it because I did that enough in my home. Now, racism was very strong in Iowa as well. 
I mean, literally, the people who would serve you food, one of them, I remember telling me that to stay away from their girl, they would say, because if you mix with our girls, you'd have zebra-looking children. I mean, this is at the cafeteria. I mean, I was being in a, in a Christian school. I remember uh, she telling me, your kids will have dots on them. This is, this is Iowa at that point. I mean, did you grasp what was going on in our country? Or was I mean, this just like total shock? This was shock to me. And I told, I remember telling him, what do you mean they'll come out dotted? Well, is it because you're black and they're white? You need to stay away from our girl. And, and I'd say, I don't understand that. And I remember one girl particularly telling me that their church tells them not to date black people. I said, I didn't want to date you. I just was asking you to, to help me with something. Oh, I can't speak with you because you're black. I mean, these are things that, eventually catch up to you. I will say that, that Stephen did find himself a nice Iowan woman eventually, who you have two beautiful children with. So there were some good ones in there. And they're not dotted or zebra looking. <laughs> and your children don't have stripes, so I can testify to that. As, I mean, I said it twice this episode already, but that is mind-blowing. I mean, yeah. that's not that long ago. Yeah, that's not long ago. So that's why... I needed to go somewhere, again, where I can run with some fellow Africans. I was really homesick, and I wanted to, to also meet where there was much more, because this is supposedly a Christian environment, but I wanted to be somewhere where I feel more welcome. Now, little did I know I was going from a frying pan into the fire. <laughs> Went to the south. <laughs> but there are some good runners there. There were really good runners, and I remember this particular Kid. I mean, that's how I got to know about Baylor, where Michael Johnson was running. Uh, that's how I got to know about, I mean, some of the good runners come from the South, Texas, the conference. I mean, it was a good conference. And if I would have continued without hurting myself, I really feel like I would have run for my country as an Olympian. I really believe. Um, because the South is where I, what I needed. And I, 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 was a, I was a smart kid. I was a 3.995 Dean's List. And I was going to be a doctor, you know, medical doctor, and, I, and I'm a doctor today. But the racism there was an obvious one, but not hidden like in the South, in the Midwest. You know what I mean? So, but, but uh, that is what made me be who I am. And today, even, even the gym setting that we're in, Kirk, as you know, everyone is welcome here. You know, uh, I have learned that as an athlete, you need that as part of the contribution to become a better athlete. You have to be sound in the mind and uh, no racist, no physical. Doesn't matter what you look like. You're welcome where we are. I want you to tell one more story and then I want to get into like getting injured and leaving the collegiate scene and how you even progress with life in the U.S. after that, like how you are set up for potential success or lack thereof after college. Um, but I want you to tell, tell the story about when you came over and you, you didn't know the weather was cold here. And if I'm not mistaken, you came over from Kenya with one outfit. Yes. I, you had one, one outfit that you came over with and nothing else, right? You showed up with your clothes and that was it. We're going back to the nineties. Yeah. I remember I had the shoes I was wearing. I had $6 that my father and mother had found for me to bring $6. Uh, and it was in coins. What what would that have been worth in Kenya? 
Like what was the value of $6 there? $6 would have bought me. I mean, I was supposed to keep this $6 for the next three months. Okay. That's what I was going to live on was $6. Apart from the food that the cafeteria gave me, if I had any personal needs, this is where this $6 would come from. So that would cover my toiletry. Uh, thank goodness the school was providing toiletry. I didn't know that, you know, uh, $6 should have covered any, if I wanted bread and the, and the school common area or the food place was closed, that's what I was supposed to live on. And then out of the $6, when I got my first paycheck, I remember sending all of it to Kenya and I still kept my $6. So I ate basic, 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 whatever they gave me, that's all, that's it. Uh, I remember dinner was at six o'clock. We were used to having dinner at 10 o'clock at night, 10, 11 o'clock at night. So I, this is, I remember someone telling me that they wanted to do my laundry. I was like, what do you mean you want to do my laundry? They wanted to wash my clothes. The way I wash clothes is, you know, scrubbing it in the water and the river, taking a soap and scrubbing the clothes. I didn't know that you can take a cloth and put it in a machine and then the machine washes it. And I remember them saying, Stephen, you've given us clothes, but we've never seen you give us underwear. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, what do you mean? Because they wanted to wash my underwear as well. That's an abomination. No one washes anyone else's underwear in my country. That's one. Number two, I only had one. (laughs) So you're supposed to wash it and wear it again. Wash it, wear it again. So I remember because it was cold outside, I did not know how to dry it. I couldn't hang it outside on the ground. like. So I, I remember washing it while I was taking a bath or a shower and then... Ringing it out. Ringing it out and then put it right back on. So I remember wearing wet underwear for a long time. What was the outfit that you came to school in? He has a very endearing story about his first winter jacket. (laughs) It's very endearing. You came over. What what was your one outfit that you wore to to class? Well, I remember I I had I remember running around and people are wondering how if how I'm not feeling cold. Uh, and I said I was running to stay warm. And that's how I got my first jacket. Because this couple, they always say, Stephen, how come you're not wearing a jacket? I say, well, I have to run to stay warm. They would see me running from one campus building to another campus building. And I didn't have, I only had my pair of boots, my pair of jeans. I had one jeans and my shirt. And they say, where's your jacket? I say, I don't have one. How are you staying warm? I run to stay warm. Didn't you wear a shirt and tie to class every day because that's what you thought you were supposed to do? Yes, that's how I did it every day. You're running across campus in boots, jeans, and a shirt and tie. <laughs> yeah. That's because if you don't dress up nicely, then they won't take you seriously. That's what they uh, But again, it was just the mentality. They say that if you're in America, you're supposed to look nice because if you don't look nice, people won't take you seriously. So that's where the tie and the shirt and the boots and the jeans, that's what I wore every day with my one wet underwear, you know. Um, Now, the problem came when I ran into a skunk. (laughs) Now, I had to get rid of my clothes. I didn't have any other clothes. You had never seen a skunk before. I had never seen a skunk before. Explain (laughs) the encounter. I'm I'm curious to know how that went. So these clothes that I wear, I dry up and 
So here comes, I'm running in my outside at night and I'm jogging, 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 getting ready for my training. And sure enough, I see this squirrel looking thing in front of me and it's not moving. So usually when I see a squirrel in my country, it scuttles away, but this one wasn't. A squirrel, you said a squirrel. Yeah, a squirrel runs away. Or any mongoose, for that reason, they run away. But this one looks different. So I'm jogging towards it, I'm going, shah, and it's not moving. So I go and I kick it. <laughs> I give it a good kick, a good nudge to get it to go, and it's not moving. And then all of a sudden, I feel this wet, stinking smell, wet, just like, a, you know how when it's mist, I feel that sudden cloud of mist come on me. You got hit point blank. Because <laughs> I kicked this thing, and when I kicked it, it turned its tail, did this acrobatic thing on his hand. And I'm like, this is witchcraft, because that's the only explanation I had for this girl. <laughs> and this mist of just cold, stinking, burning thing that went up my nose. And I'm like, America really stinks. <laughs> and I kick it again, and it did it again. So I'm like, this girl is funny. It's not... It's not moving. <laughs> and I kick it the third time, and then it ran away. But it quieted me with this mist. The first time, I thought it was just a sewer. The second time, I thought it was just some kind of rain. But then the third time, I am the only person that I know to this day that has made a skunk walk away. So I go to the dorm after running. So you ran? I, I, after kicking the squirrel away. You did your workout then? Covered in skunk spray. <laughs> Running, I finished my run. But I didn't know that this is what had sprayed me at that point. So I go into the dorm and everyone, the first person tell me, Stephen, what happened to you? I don't speak English well at that point. But I tell him I ran into this black and white squirrel and it just wouldn't move. I kicked it, kicked it, and it looked like it sprayed me. I'm like, you got sprayed by a skunk. I'm like, skunk, what do you mean a skunk? That was my first experience with my skunk. And that's how my one outfit had to be gotten rid of. And I had to cut my hair. Later on, when people were telling me that I ran into a skunk, that was my first experience of a skunk. I was sprayed with a skunk three times. And my one outfit, I had to find another outfit because I couldn't just wash it. And the stink stayed on me for 21 days, 30 days, I mean, 15 days. It was terrible. Ugh. It was the worst experience. I cut my hair, I had to be bald. I had a little dreadlocks at that time. I had to cut them off because nothing could rid of that smell. That's how I got my second outfit, Kirk. <laughs> what was that second outfit? My, my second outfit was some the jacket that someone got for me, you know, and, and, and that. I couldn't wear my first outfit. I got my second underwear because of that. Someone bought me some, because all my clothes were smelling like skunk, all of it. It, it, was, it was one of the most American broken cultures for me. I've never run into a skunk in my country, all my wild life. But then I ran into it in the middle of Iowa. You explain that. <laughs> I don't know anybody in the right mind that go kick a but it was sitting right there. This skunk would not move. I am trying to run, and this skunk is sitting right there. And then the worst part is when it goes on its front legs like this, and then the tail does this, and it sprays me. But the funny thing is because I didn't see 
the time I was running, I didn't see the spray. So I didn't know that that's what sprayed me. And I kept annoying this animal. And that's what skunks do. They spray you so you can go away from But I didn't know that this is a skunk. I had no idea. I, I mean, I've seen a badger, you know, the black and white badger, but this wasn't a badger. So I didn't think it would bite me, you know. You'd have been better off if it bit you. <laughs> yeah. So, so back to your question. Yes, culturally, those are some of the things that Kenyans do experience that are hard. Racism, wild animals like this skunk spraying me that I didn't know. The cold weather, you know. Did an airplane blow your mind? I, the, the thing about an airplane, I had never been in an airplane. I just couldn't believe that an airplane can take off the ground. I mean, I knew, oh, it was, it was, it was terrible. Uh, I remember a lady, this is my experience with an airplane. I remember this, this lady coming and giving me a Coca-Cola can and it had, I could hear the liquids in it, but they did not tell me how to open it. <laughs> so I remember shaking it and wondering how I can get the water. And I see, I hear and I'm trying to figure out how do I open this? I'm looking, 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 and I can hear it and I'm shaking it. Just like a coconut, you know, you crack it and it opens, but I couldn't find the opening. So after shaking it enough, I said, no more. Why don't you help me open it? And <laughs> open it. And it was a Coca-Cola can. All I didn't know that I was doing is I was shaking all that carbon and this explosion of soda everywhere because I had not known that this soda inside is what I need to be drinking, but I didn't know. They gave me this can, but they didn't tell me to open it. You know, that's one thing in the airplane. That just blew my mind. Oh, that was in the airplane. That was in the airplane. <laughs> they, they, this, this soda everywhere, everywhere. The ironic thing about that question, Bracken, is why don't you tell them what you're doing right now in regards to airplanes? I, I, right, I'm a pilot now. <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> I want to have a plane that I can use as an ambulance to transfer patients. So that's what, that's what my final goal is. Because in Kenya, people have suffered because of that. People have not been able to go to get some care. And I'm trying to open a hospital too in Kenya. Wow. And it'll be airplane-based ambulance. Airplane-based ambulance. Yes, that's what I want to do. We should, we should continue your story here about your athletic career. Um, listen, Stephen has a, a thousand of these stories, and they'll all make you feel warm and fuzzy and chuckle because I've heard them. They're fantastic. Um, but I do want to wrap up with your collegiate career. So um, this sounds like the, your senior year, you ended up pulling a hamstring, and that was the end of your run at your dream. I pulled of my sartorius. Sartorius? Yeah, I pulled my sartorius, and you can actually see the depression on there. I can still run today that El Natural running, I can still run. I mean, I can hold my own. If I had to race someone, I think if I practice enough, I can do that. But that's why I became a doctor, so that I can help people who are injured. Um, I want, I do a lot of conservative ways of treating. And as you know, Kirk, most of the people who come to see me, I'm almost the last resort of, of them. You know, they've seen so many other practitioners. Now they could, if they, let's just try one more time. I wish they would see me sooner because I know what the issue is. I can mechanically figure out what the problem is. 
And whatever it is that is happening to them is a result of something they did back then. I've treated you before. You know how that has worked. Um, after getting hurt, I wanted to focus on being the sports doctor. And that's what I am today, a chiropractor who practices sports medicine. And the, my office is what you saw, that big 13,000 square foot complex. And I really truly incorporate exercise and fitness. Unless you're blind or unless you're hard of hearing, anything that's muscle related can always be treated with what we do here. I want to ask you about that in a second. But my one curiosity before we get to any of that is when you come over as a foreign athlete, you don't have citizenship, correct? And so when you graduate or your athletic purpose is finished, what are you told to do? Or what is what is the athletes, the foreign athletes supposed to do when their collegiate career is up? What do they get? Any resources? What What's given to you? They send you back. That's it. That's it. How soon? Now. Like you graduate and you're out of here? You graduate, you have, you have either one, your one semester to do something related to your to what you studied in school, or you go back home. And what did you do? What I did is is what I'm doing today. I started doing personal training. I was supposed to go to the U of M Medical School here, but I ended up going to Northwestern Health Sciences for chiropractic. And, and that's what brought me time until today. And even this, uh, I was... I created, with the help of people like Kirk, I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for my brother Kirk, who has helped me tremendously. Him and my wife and just the group of people that Kirk has brought around, it's amazing how we're here. Steven, Steven started personal training out of a garage, I believe, correct? Yeah, that's uh, yeah. And, and, and again, same story. I, I mean, I, I, I went to join it. I wanted to go to, Kirk, you know this story. I wanted to go and do join a gym and they told me that that looking at you you don't look like you can afford our membership here and i say mm -hmm. what do you mean i can't afford your membership you say and it was the northwestern before you turn into lifetime and they say they say well just look at you, you can't afford our membership i say just tell me what it is and they say well you can't afford it why don't you go to north minneapolis they might have a gym there for you now the funny thing is i didn't even know what north minneapolis was i just came here I'm like, what do you mean North Minneapolis? Oh, well, down the street, there's another gym you can go join. And so I left. And so I went to Bally's and I told them, can I join your gym? And I told them, please don't tell me. I can't afford it before you tell me. And that's how I joined Bally's because I warned them not to tell me I can't afford it. They didn't know that they were dealing with a world-class athlete. They, had, they just looked at me and they didn't want anything to do with me. So I wanted to do more. So I went and opened up our, our garage. I mean, I... I, I I rented a house and just turned the garage into a gym. That racial bias is why I'm here today. It was a blessing in disguise. Someone told me, your color is not right. Just like I told you, Kirk, you look so pretty. I didn't know if I wanted to work with you, remember? You came and you said, see, I, and I said, sweetie, he's a celebrity. We're going to have a lot of issues because he's a pretty boy. That's what I thought. <laughs> Steven didn't want me to be on the be on the team. I walked in looking for a new place to partner with 10 years ago. And I walked in in a like a buttoned up shirt and well-fitted pants looking like I was trying to show up, like, you know, make sure I made a good impression. And Steven wanted nothing to do with me. I have never run into the problem of being too pretty for a job, Kirk. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always right in the sweet spot. I'm, I'm not a threat to anyone. <laughs> But it worked out well. So, 
So the garage, that's where that comes from. And I've been hurt before, Kirk, and that's where all that came from. But even today, if I look at my feet, you can see signs of, 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 of stress, trauma. I mean, my feet are not the prettiest sight, but that's what has brought me here today, you know? Uh, but all that craziness, racial bias, culture shock, snow, falling down while trying to walk on snow because I thought the snow would hold me up. All that has brought us to where we are today. And my sons love to run because of this, you know, because we have given them that environment to make him grow in that. Uh, people that you see and I see and that listen to you are better because of what we have been through to teach him so they don't make the same mistakes. So here we are. Here we are. When they told me I'm done, I created that so that I didn't have to go back. You asked me that question. I had to create something that they wouldn't tell me to go back. How long did that take then until you could be naturalized? Well, I just became a citizen maybe four years ago. He was studying really? for a citizen test. It took him that long. Yeah, I just took I took that I took that test. But all along, it took you over twenty years to get citizenship. Well, what happens is it wasn't necessary because I wasn't competing for for something else that an American wanted. I had created mine. You know, I I created mine. So I'm not taking away from someone else. I, I'm a nurse as well, and I did that as a means to end. I was also a realtor. I had a construction company. I mean, all those led to this. This building, I rehabbed it myself because of my, my construction business is the one that built it. But I created that so that I didn't have to take away from someone else, you know, so. Did you ever run another race after Tyranir Sartorius? I tried. I tried. I remember in Florida, after doing some rehab for it, I remember running and my leg just went on its own. I, I couldn't control my leg. Uh, 30 yards, and I couldn't do it. Uh, what I wish someone told me back then was how to rehab it. What had happened is, is it tore, a little part of it tore and coiled backwards. Mm-hmm. What really they could have done is re, you know, reattached and pulled it and reattached it. But no one told me. You know, I was just the basic, basic. I wasn't big time runner yet, but I was getting there, but not big enough for someone in my team to help me understand that injury. Hmm. So, would I, and the problem with that is I didn't have a good closure. So that's why today I still struggle with understanding why I need to run, you know? Steven, I have a question for you that I think our listeners can probably relate to. Um, for a runner, I don't know anybody who hates running more than you do. <laughs> Steven hates running. Now, and what I want to know with that, I know you're laughing, but it's true. You know it's true. How many times have you told me you hate running? Hundreds? As many times as I can. <laughs> what a, why? Why do you hate running? What about your your background, your, your upbringing? What about it do you hate now? And you were as high level as it gets other than maybe making an Olympic team. Why do you hate running? Because, because it reminds me of poverty. Mm. Every time I ran, every time I ran, it was to go... Is because I couldn't get a bike. I couldn't run. I couldn't just get on a bike and go get it. I had to run there. Uh, and and I, I also hate it because it reminds me of, 
of those late nights, I had to go get something for my mom. Well, I mean, I remember my dad, if you were studying and you fell asleep a little bit, he would make you run three miles to stay awake. <laughs> my dad loves me, but that's what he thought was a way to keep me to compete with the rest of the world, education-wise. We were studying until 1, 2 o'clock in the morning, studying. And then the next morning, 5 o'clock, we had to wake up again, then run some more, you know. So that's why I don't like to run. Another reason why I don't like to run is because it's cold outside. But deal with that conversation lately, haven't we, Bracken? So, so, but I'm hoping that one day I can find a way so I can enjoy running again. Because running is really a good sport. It's, it's the only sport really, apart from swimming, that your whole body is working at once, you know. Do you still run? Do I still run? Yes, I, I run. Those fart legs, remember I told you, where you, you sprint and then you jog. Sprint, that's the, those are the ones I do now. But I do that once a year. <laughs> Wait, so you run once a year? Once a year. Do you have a day every year you choose? It's the warmest day of the year. July, I think the 22nd, I think. Or that's the warmest day and the longest day on earth in Minnesota. It's, uh, what's the longest day of the year? The 21st, I believe it is. That's the day I run. So you run one fart lick per year, no matter what, whether you need it or not. I just go run it and that's it. You won't find me running any other day of the year. If you find me running, I, I tell Kirk, if someone is holding a gun to my head, and, and no one else knows it. <laughs> you you will not find me running for nothing. There's no reason. I can walk there. <laughs> but that does make sense. It makes sense because I bet you running seems very trivial and unnecessary in today today's world. You've done you've done enough of that. Yeah, I met my quota. Out of necessity. Yeah, that makes sense. Um the, the the one thing I do want to touch on is um, you do work with high-level athletes. So Steve went on and got his chiropractic degree. Um, what, you have your pilot's license now. You're always you're a pianist who gets taught by like a master pianist. This guy's never sitting still. And that was after you learned and mastered the saxophone, if I remember. Not believe the guitar is sitting around. This guy just never stops. He's he's like, Steven's like the world's most interesting man from Kenya. But but you you do work with <clears throat> so you worked hard you developed this great business treating athletes patients um, general population as well um, can you just speak a little bit to um, I don't know your general philosophy on like health and athletes and all of that I think I think as an athlete number one you have to have some kind of faith that's one uh, because it makes you look forward to something me and you when we have conversations while we're here. We always talk about faith because that you cannot physically destroy. So faith gives you something to look up to. That's one. And then number two, you have to be sharp in the mind. Your mind is the only thing that will direct your body to what to do. If you spend time on positive things, your body will reflect that. If you spend mind on negative things, your body will reflect that too. And then last but not least, the physical part of it. The physical your body is the manifest of what your faith and your mind is. I will know you by what your, how you are, how you behave. It will tell me what your faith is. And also it will tell me where your mental time is spent. They say the devil spends a lot of time on the mind that's wasteful. Those are the three things that I live by as an athlete. I try to be 
faithful to God, and I try to be faithful to my family and kids. But also in my mind, I try to feed my mind good things so that that way the result of my body reflects that. As an athlete, if you get all those in order, those three in order, I think you're okay. I find it interesting that as a chiropractor who does manual manipulation on patients, that the physical was the third thing you listed. Yes, it is the third thing because, like I said, anything that you see here was a result of something I put in my mind and prayed for two weeks ago. Anything that even, even I mean, even uh, with a, a guy who doesn't shave, something happened. A guy who doesn't isn't groomed, something happened a week or two or three ago that has resulted into that look, you know? An injury is a result of something that you didn't do that you should have addressed when it started to hurt. Everything is a result of that. So the chiropractors, as chiropractors, they call it preventative medicine. Preventative medicine is something to avoid what's coming. So whatever you see here is a result of me preventing to get worse. When I got hurt, I did not prevent something. And someone didn't tell me that I should do it to prevent it. It's called stretching. I did not stretch enough. And over a period of time of not stretching and overwhelming my body, my body finally gave in. People who are fit are people who practice and practice and practice. You run, you run almost every day, but your injury will not be someone's injury who doesn't run every day, you know? And that's what I mean by that. As a chiropractor, I tell people to be on top of it so much that whatever the final result of the injury won't show up if you're on top of it. And that's why we're coming. I really like that. And chiropractic isn't, isn't really isn't really a physical. I, I think this is my opinion. So no one needs to email you about this. <laughs> my, my opinion is, is, is a chiropractor, that physical manipulation comes from the muscle has not done it. So I'm coming in there to help your muscle do it. I am manipulating it because your natural muscle physiology has not done it for you. That's why that spot is tender. Because that muscle is working so hard to take it off, but you're not doing it, so I'll do it for you. Then I adjust you. And that's my opinion. That is a very non-American mindset. It's a very African mindset. It's a very Kenyan mindset. And, and I am no Kenyan expert, but I've had the pleasure of talking to and running with a few Kenyan athletes in my life. And something that has become incredibly apparent to me is that in the U.S., we worry about talent. We worry about training style, training philosophy, and the Kenyan athlete seems to worry about mindset and attitude. You talk to the U.S. say, "How how is your fitness? And well, I had a really good training block. I raised my mileage up 20 miles. Um, I've been really focusing on my power output. And the Kenyan will say, I believe very strongly in my fitness right now. I know I can go out and do what I need to do. I feel very strong in my mind. Whereas the U.S. will talk about what their body is doing, and the Kenyan wow. athlete always ta tells me about what their mind is doing. Wow. wow. And again, this is a sample size of maybe eight or ten. But it, to a man, every Kenyan athlete I've talked to is always addressing their mindset. Yeah. They always discount talent. Even if they are talented or not, they say, talent doesn't matter. My mind tells my body what to do. And the U.S. athlete will say, well, you know, I'm not quite talented enough and my training didn't go well. 
they won't talk about the belief. And so it's interesting to see that it not only impacts the Kenyan athlete, but also your mindset as a medical provider for athletes. Wow, you're, that's a revelation to me. It's you, I've just, I think you just opened another container for me that was, I didn't realize, but that is so true. That is, so I agree with you 100%. And I struggled with that. The first few times I think you're saying talent doesn't matter because you have it the same way a rich man will say money doesn't matter. It matters to the poor person yeah, and yeah. it matters to the slow obese person. Talent matters. And yet every single time the difference between athletes comes wow. between the ears. Wow. At the end of the day, they were right, but it took me a long time to embrace that. Yeah, it's, 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 it's the body does what the mind tells it to do. And if the mind... And I, I think me and Kirk were talking about how my mind needs to be in the right place, you know, and you can burn out and then your body reflects a burnout, you know, it, it reflects the burnout. I am the result of what I did two weeks ago. Right now, my present, my present presence is a result of what my mind told it to do two weeks ago. That includes if I prayed, that includes if I had a good time talking with my wife, having a good time with my kids, my physical body reflects that. It's so true. And I, that's what I tell people. But they, oh, but the research does not support that. It doesn't matter what the research does. You know, it's you as an individual person. And I think you guys have done, I mean, you and the two of you, the persistence of the two of you is a result of this manifest. Whatever effort you guys have put into it, the crowd listening to you is a result of your persistence. That comes from your mind. You've done everything to make this exist. And that's the following you have. I want to know, just since we're on this topic, how do you instill that? And like, like if you get somebody off the street to come in and say they're having neck or back pain or whatever it is, how do you instill that mind? Like, do you deal with the mind piece with them? How do you address that? Like, where do you start that piece? If you think somebody's like, it's your head that's the problem. It's your head that needs adjusting, let's say, not li not physically, you know what I'm saying, metaphorically. What do you, how do you do that? I think one thing that all of us do, again, I hope you don't get emails on this. One thing that me and you do when we feel sick, the first thing is we do what? Yeah. Stay away from what? The physical attribute, isn't it? Mm. Uh, don't slow down. Do that. That's what they say. For me, when someone comes off the street and they tell me, Stephen, this hurts me so bad. I need, I need your help. I say, what is it that you've been told not to do? Oh, I was told not to, not to exercise too hard or lift too hard. Or, and then I say, let's start from there. Let's start from something that you were doing that was keeping you healthy in the first place. And now all of a sudden you've stopped and now you're feeling the result of having stopped that. So I'll give you an example. Um, someone came in and they have a, a pain that's hurting so much, let's say in their shoulder area. I say, um, what is it that you're doing that's making that shoulder hurt so much? Well, I do, I'm a hairdresser. Okay, well, let's find a way to find another way around mechanically doing that. Oh, but I was told not to work for a few days. That's what they're told. Well, let's find another way around it. Let's set the mind to have you work around that. What can you do different? Let's use our right hand more versus your left hand versus stopping completely. 
So that's what I do is I tell people from the street, let's get that mindset to not believe what that doctor believes in. The doctor believes in stopping this. So that doctor is pinching that on the patient. You know what I mean? Or am I am I off? Do you understand what I mean? Oh yeah. A lot of a lot of a lot of providers, you find a provider who's obese telling a fit person like you to stop doing what you're doing because maybe that's what's creating the hurt. Meanwhile, the pay the provider is obese. Do you understand? So are you saying like you would like instead of it's you're shifting their mindset to open up the possibility to still be doing and using and instead of no, don't and can't, it's like yes, we will and let's find find a way and then just reopen their mind that way. Is that what I'm understanding? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. I'm telling him I'm telling him to to not completely believe that that's the problem. Maybe they need to find another way around it. Instead of using your right hand all the time, maybe you need to start using your left hand. As you know, um, and and that's a struggle because chiropractors sometimes are shunned that that we're that you're a chiropractor, you're not a medical. Therefore, there's that conflict that's there, and and instead of working together to find the solution, we sideline each other. You know, and and I think. If even us chiropractors start using our mind to work together versus English, this is where I struggle with English. I want to speak in Swahili. <laughs> you can speak in Swahili. Yeah, I think I think if we can get around, we have to find another another way versus completely shutting it off. Collaboration. Collaboration. That's right. That makes sense to me. How about you, Megan? Well, especially if the the action causes the issue then your issue is with the action you have to get better at the action not avoid the action not avoid it this is exactly right yes but but most people can't jump into the alternate version of that action they need guidance from a steven in order to find what that pattern is you you could not put it in a better way um i i'll give you one example there's a patient who came in and they have done CT scan, they have done bone scan, they have done x-rays, they have done all sorts of imagery to find out what the issue is that's bothering this patient. The only thing they haven't done is postural analysis. What is it that this patient is doing that's making their body have this kind of injury that hurts so much? The postural analysis is missing in the equation. Why? Because it's too simple. What? Just postural analysis? No, it can't be. It's got to be some kind of cancer. No, it's got to be something else. What is it that's making this patient hurt? It can be just because their shoulder is tight. Do you see what I mean? That's the problem, is we overshoot it, yet the kill is right here. We, we blast it with all this science, yet it's just a simple, you need to sit taller, you need to move your arms a little bit more, you need to do a little bit higher knees. It's, 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 the body has made it so easy for us. Well, we've complicated it more than we really need to. I like that. I have nothing to add on to any of these. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think the last thing then is we kind of wrap this wrap this up, Stephen. And I'm guessing you have a patient at one, which probably is four minutes from now. Um, if you are in the Minneapolis area, why don't you just tell them about your current business and, and such? I mean, obviously, we've been talking about it, but the name of it, where we're located, all that sort of thing, if anybody wants to reach out. Well, number one... We are at uh, downtown Robbinsdale, 
Uh, we've been here. It looks like we had a little recording snafu just to wrap up this conversation, and Stephen just disappeared. You say snafu, huh? Snafu, sure. Snafu, what? Same tomato, tomato? Cultural differences. I'm from Wisconsin. <laughs> oh, I'm from Wisconsin. I'm from the north, though. You're naturalized right? into Minnesota. We're already rambling. Uh, Stephen just disappeared. Um, so I'm going to wrap it up for him. He was telling you that if you're in the Minneapolis uh, or Twin Cities Metro, go to fit, uh, lionsgym.com. Um, or you can check him out on Instagram, I believe. Oh, and he's calling me right now. <laughs> so we might be back on. Otherwise, we lost him, but he will be back. We have a lot of Kenyan training talk to get into that I'm not nearly satisfied about. So we'll be back, folks. Thank you.